This is Emily Scott in studio. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And I believe we have Max on the phone. Max, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. All right. All right. Awesome. We have one more uh, guest coming in today, but she's running a little bit late. Um, So we're, yeah, so we're going to get started. Um, This is your Sunday news hour. Um, Yeah. All right. How's your weekend going, Max? Uh, it's really busy. Uh, the heat wave finally broke, which is great, but I've got my own boiling pot of things going on over here. So, oh, the imagery. I'm not in the studio, but good to hear your voice. Still. Yeah, you too. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. You know, just trucking along day by day. Um, yeah, the heat wave broke, but it still feels like 95 outside. It's funny how yeah, well. it's all relative, <laughs> I guess. I'm still sweating, but um. All right. So, yeah, let's dive in with a couple uh, local news stories. All right. Um, So the New York Times published a report earlier this week that revealed that the New York Police Department uses facial recognition technology on juveniles as young as 11 years old. Uh, This is problematic for a number of reasons, including the lack of oversight in the policing and privacy of a portion of the population with protected status in the criminal justice system. And uh, and also our other guest is here. So we're going to give her a second to get settled in. But um, but yeah, so that's kind of crazy. Right. So a major point of concern with, um, you know, images of like young people used like that is that their faces are constantly changing and very quickly. And according to, yeah, you know, just because that's what happens when you age. And according to uh, (laughs) (laughs) Carl uh, Rakanik, Rasanik Jr., who's a co-founder of the Face Aging Group at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, um, the systems and the technology do not... Oh, you, okay. Uh, This is... Max, are you... Are you still there, Max? All right, we might have lost Max, but it's okay because we got Jamie. <laughs> um, according to uh, the co-founder of the Face Aging Group at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, the systems do not have the capacity to understand the dynamic changes that occur to a child's face. Um, so it's kind of silly to have these images in a database for years when, um, you know, they're useless and maybe a year for some folks. And uh, Jamie... You here? Hey. Hi. What's going on? All right. Well, we're talking. Hey, oh, and Max, you're oh. here too. Oh, what a lovely surprise. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, just to fill you in quickly, Jamie, we're talking on um, the New York Police Department has a, you know, facial recognition technology. It's that idea is nothing new. What's surprising is that they're using it on youth and juveniles mm-hmm. um, who, you know, have a protected status in the criminal justice system. Um yeah, and uh, and it's also was reported that several members of the city council, as well as a range of civil liberties groups, says they were said they were unaware of the policy until they were contacted by the New York Times. Um, wow. Yeah. Do groups like these have a right to know about such policies? What do you think, Max? I mean, you know, I, I feel like this is coming at a time when I don't know if y'all saw, for example, when they see us, the Central Park Five Netflix yeah. series that mm-hmm. was. Talk, uh, directed by Ava DuVernay, it recently came out, and I think it's it's touched a nerve for a lot of people uh, at, in in terms of how 
uh, young folks are swept into the criminal justice system. Yeah, definitely. Um, and maybe I'm cynical. Maybe I, maybe it's that I watched that show recently. Mm-hmm. But it just seems like that kind of um, fine line of, you know, what is the point here? Right. And what to what end are we uh criminalizing these young folks and putting them in a database that will be, as you said, ineffective in two years if the photos are from their youth. Right. And I mean, there's also the concern that let's say they're not, um, there's some algorithmic thing that makes them still useful when that, you know, former child is now an adult, but the system is set up to kind of give them a clean slate, right? Like it's it's set up so that their whole life isn't defined by, you know, some, sort of misdemeanor crime that they committed when they were like 14. But now is that going to kind of follow them because of a lack of oversight on the system? Yeah. Yeah. I think that what I read was also, it's not until you're 21 that they'll consider deleting your uh, picture from the database and you have to have not committed any crimes uh, up until that point. And so, yeah, you know, it's basically being on probation in a certain right. sense. Right. Um, and, you know, when we talk about the criminal justice system, it does extend to these kinds of uh, less concrete uh, systems that basically are ways to surveil communities mm-hmm. and keep them, um, you know, within databases like right. we're talking about so that they're easy to identify even if done poorly or right. wrongly. Right. Yeah. And I was reading a statistic or something that it said, like, um, we, we have an imbalance in terms of like, um, uh, race. We have an imbalanced justice system. You know, people of color are more often arrested for certain crimes, things like that, but, um, and convicted, but it was for juveniles. Apparently it's even worse where it's something like 15 to one, um, oh, yeah. for juveniles getting arrested. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, um, people, uh, juveniles of color versus children, white children. Um, which is kind of crazy. So it's like, it's, it's even more. So the system is going to even more just be in compiling data on um, a community of color, essentially for yeah. the New York police department to kind of, that's what, what it sounds like yeah. to me. And then, I mean, this uh, saying that the systems don't have the capacity to understand dynamic changes that like we have the face app thing. Like that doesn't make sense to me now because we live in a world where we're looking at what we look oh. like when we get older. Well, I mean, I don't know if I missed something earlier. So but. no, no, no. I mean, it is interesting. So it's the, these systems are, um, those, I, <laughs> those are all predictive, right? Um, but well, it, we, obviously, right. Yeah. yeah. And it's also, it's being used yeah. on, um, it, it's, it's the bone structure that sometimes changes in children, mm-hmm. right? That's like, it's for, so those face aging apps kind of just make you like wrinkly old, right? <laughs> but it's like, but these systems are also biased in a lot of ways where it, it doesn't, they aren't as accurate for children and they aren't as accurate for people of color, right? Right. Specifically, yeah. the technology is biased um, to have trouble recognizing people with darker sense. skin tones. Because yeah. it's also like yeah. who's making the technology, right? So it's like, it's all tied up with, um, with it, it's there's there's so many issues involved with this particular story. There's, um, there's the use of technology, um, without oversight, right? Yeah. Like, I'm, I mean, I think that's the biggest. It's a, it is a huge one. It's a huge one. Um, and it's scary, right? There's no one really regulating what they're doing. It's it's the it's the technology right. moving faster than the law, and um, 
you know, and it's also like, you know, if these groups, you know, civil city council members didn't know about it, like, is that intentional, right? Are they, you know, and does the police department have a, have, is that just part of keeping the community safe? Is just developing technologies and not, you know, they don't have to reveal everything in their investigations, but is that true across the board? You know, is that right? And also when we think about like Bill de Blasio and, you know, he, in the article, uh, it says that he did know he was aware of the policy and his Mm -hmm. relationship with the police has been fraught for since he came into office, but his ability to, you know, I, I just feel a little bit jaded that he wouldn't have like made this public earlier. I mean, right. this feels like something that sh- the public should be aware of mm-hmm. uh, and that, and that that's sort of his job and it, it you know. Right. And it makes, it makes you wonder how, like, you know, how these things are revealed to the people who do know about them. Is it just sort of like a slow, like release of information? I'm sure it wasn't like, this is like a bombshell drop because we've reached the point where, you know, this is happening, but it was just kind of like, oh, we have this facial recognition technology and we use it for this reason. And like, oh, by the way, we're going to extend the ages with which we use it because, you know, and it kind of right. makes it sound, right. if you slowly get yeah. that information, you're kind of like adjusting to it and you're like, oh, okay, I guess that's okay. As opposed to like actually taking a step back and seeing um, everything for what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to the next story. All right. Um, so earlier this week, a federal appeals court in Manhattan, Manhattan um, d- decided that it was uh, not okay for um, people with the the financial means to be granted bail based on privately paid for security arrangements, um, something that notoriously right now Jeffrey Epstein had requested. Um, it found that both rich and poor defendants should face the same bail arrangements. Um and I mean, I'm just kind of blown away that that was an option in in general, that like if you were rich enough, you could get out of jail because you could buy, a, you know, pay for a security guard to watch you 24 hmm. seven. Um, right. That's kind of crazy. Like I it just really highlights the injustice built into our bail system. Right. Like who. You know what I mean? Like if, if you can't if you, there's there's people who are stuck in jail because they can't afford like a five hundred dollar bail for like a misdemeanor. Not because they were convicted of a crime, but because they were, like, you know, arrested for one. Um, right. Yeah. Which is crazy. It's crazy. And then people like Jeffrey Epstein, who, um, I mean, of course, hasn't been convicted for this one, but ha- was in jail previously for similar crimes. Um, pretty heinous stuff. Like, you know, oh, yeah. non-misdemeanors. <laughs> um, we're talking major like, felonies. should yeah. stay in jail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, like, he, because he would have, I mean, up, up until this ruling, he hypothetically could have been... Uh, just got, you know, gone home and stayed at his fancy mansion on the Upper East Side. Well, this would that would be no uh, nothing new, you know. Right. In, in the last case that was tried in Miami, he ended up going to jail, but he was able to negotiate an arrangement in which he would spend six hours of the day at his fancy waterfront office on a work release program. Crazy. And he had security guards standing outside the door. But they were not monitoring his activities, so he would have visitors. He would, you know, anybody could come and go, basically. And he could uh, still make and, money. He could, he was super yeah, wealthy, and he, right. they set up a situation where, well, you're rich enough that we want, like, you're able to still make money, where a lot of people go to jail, and their whole economic future just kind of falls apart. 
Um, Absolutely. They can't get jobs. Yeah. They can't get right. Yeah. Um, they can't get jobs. They're limited in, you know, when they can work, how they can work, um, where they can work. Yeah. They can't work and with other like, felons. Um, yeah. Yeah. And their resources have just gotten depleted. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's right. terrible. Um, I'm also just confused that it's <clears throat> like, so, like you as an individual can pay for your own like jail alternative also seems like some, you know what I mean? Like a guard. I, I mean, I, I don't know if there's a system in place where like, the, yeah, I'm sure like the maybe the government has to approve the person you pick, but like. It seems against the point. Yeah, it see it. Yeah, like it, <clears throat> like a guard who's getting paid by you to watch you in like a jail setting, not like to protect you from other people. Feels like well, you're just gonna be able to do whatever you yeah. want, more or less. I don't like know. It does feel like protection, or like because if it's just a guard, it could yeah. be security for you or for people around you. Right. It, it feels like I, I maybe I'm missing something there, but it feels like well, it defeats the purpose of jail. Like jail is a public. Um, government decided. Right. right. And I mean, I, you know, it kind of gets tied up in the whole um, current issue of uh, for profit jails, I feel like to a certain degree. Um, it feel it's like obviously not the same by any means, but it's the idea of our criminal justice system becoming more and more privatized, um, which is kind of a scary prospect, I think, because whenever money gets involved, there's it's never I mean, our justice system has never has never really, really, truly been just or very rarely has. It feels like. But like this just makes it feel all the more um, likely to uh, be problematic. Well, yeah, because then there's very little consequences for your actions. If you have the money, you can do whatever you want, which is kind of built into our justice system. Right. right. Yeah. Oh, right. Any last thoughts on that one, Max? Uh, no, I, I just hope that uh, he gets his just desserts, I guess. It's <laughs> it's it's tough because, you know, well, yeah, I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this case in particular is just so, like, it's it's just so, like, grotesque. Yeah. Like, just someone with that much access to, like, celebrity and money um, and getting away with the types of sexual crimes he was committing for so long is just... It's gross. It's kind it's of horrible. And it's I like grotesque. Thank That's you. I was trying not to repeat myself, but thank you. Well, it's good because it feels like grotesque is like a word of, of theater. Like it feels like <laughs> it's not real. Like yeah. it's it's so yeah. yeah. Like Yeah. Yeah. All right. On to the last one. Well, if oh, I yeah. could just say oh. one last thing sure. on that. I guess the the thing that comes to my mind is the it's a little bit shocking that this is all happening and un, unraveling in the way that it is in the light of uh, the major political movement of the year, which was, you know, Me Too, Mm -hmm. and how that was, uh, you know, banded around in the media and made huge waves and toppled massively popular and powerful figures. And this feels like, you know, right in line with all of those different cases through the Kavanaugh decision and i'm i wonder if the you know the lack of attention comes from the fact that it also has to do with sex work and if Mm. people uh have more complicated feelings about it because it involves sex workers that's a really interesting point 
Um, yeah, and I think that's really interesting. I mean, I th- part of the or part of or the whole issue is um, well, I guess sex trafficking, but also um, underage, ch- like g- children, essentially, yeah. were part of were some of his victims. Um, but it's interesting. That's a really interesting point. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, all right. On to the last story, which is a little bit happier. It's a weird transition. <laughs> weird transition from the one we we're talking about. But um, so City Council Speaker Corey Johnson just unveiled a new initiative aimed at tackling food insecurity in New York City. Uh, next year, the city's free summer meals program for children may be expanded to include parents and guardians so that um, kids, not only kids can come pick up free meals for themselves, but their parents who are also struggling um, to make sure that they have regular meals could also come, which would be great. Um, right. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, so critics of the current program says that say that there's not enough pa- uh, parents don't know enough about it. It's not enough outreach. Um, parents have trouble finding distribution points. Um, so in general, uh, you know, they're trying to think of, you know, ways of sending home pamphlets, pamphlets with children. Um I wanted to, it's like, you know, a little PSA uh, spreading the word. I know this is whatever our listenership may be. You might know someone out there who struggles with this sort of thing. And, um, you know, maybe they are someone that you can just let know or kind of find a way um, to get that information out there. Um, And it's also a good reminder that, um, you know, it's not just people in far off lands who are struggling to eat. Um, It's people in our own backyard, um, your own neighbors, people, you know, um, that are food insecure a lot of the time. And I think that's something that a lot of Americans forget because mm-hmm. we live in this country where, um, you know, we're not facing famine in like a real, um, in like the sense that we're brought to believe famine exists. Um, that we're living like a land of plenty where there's grocery stores where food goes bad left and right, but there's plenty of people who can't afford a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah, despite expiration dates. Um, so, yeah. And then, um, yeah, on a last note that uh, City Council Speaker Johnson brought up was that um, so it's not just an issue of providing more food and enough food, but nutritious food. Mm, And this is one that um, has always kind of bugged me since I was in like middle school or high school, I guess, and like kind of saw the type of food that was being provided and like, you know, like books like The Omnivore's Dilemma were coming out. (laughs) Recently, I went vegetarian. Um, And it's, it's sort of like, why is so much of our institutional food that's provided um like so lacking in nutritional value um you know and like why are we okay with that yeah i mean it it all comes back to money yeah you know it's a lot cheaper to um you know french fries yeah are a lot cheaper than i don't know like a salad like salad is expensive in the way that like just you know keeping goods good and um I know from like working in schools and, and being with kids mm-hmm. that it's it just becomes very difficult. And then when they're eating French fries at home and they're eating, you yeah. know, what they can afford at home, which is often fast food and much cheaper because parents don't have time to even buy groceries in bulk and cook it. They have to just buy fast food because they're working all of the time. Yeah. Then the right. kids don't want to eat, you know, tomatoes and salad and, right. uh, you know, really healthier food because it's not what they're used to it's also um less filling right like a a mcdonald's cheeseburger is gonna make you feel fuller longer than um you know a salad or like you know an apple um and they often cost the same you know like a dollar fifty for an apple a dollar fifty for like a a small burger at mcdonald's and 
I no, mean, Wendy's has four for four. Yeah. Like stuff, you know what I mean? It's stuff like that. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's the whole problem is so much bigger. <laughs> like we're not going to solve it here today, obviously. And like, uh, there's no. a lot of books about it and a lot of people know a lot more, but it's, it's, it's a societal issue of what, of, uh, that's really interesting too. Cause other societies like, um, other countries you see the like their their free lunches for their students and it's like gourmet you know what i mean like yeah. and it's and of course right. like you know um not all countries because there are of course countries that are facing um food shortages right but um yeah it's just interesting what we as a society have decided is okay totally and it i think it depends you know i think we're we're moving in that mm-hmm. direction yeah. i would say when we were in elementary school it looks very different from the lunches that are served True. in elementary schools now yeah. And it also depends on the neighborhood, the state. I mean, it's such a widespread thing. Yeah. Um, but it is different. I mean, I also experienced school lunches in, in Spain. Yeah, what was that like? It was like a gourmet lunch. They yeah. had like in a public school? In a public uh no, it was a private school. Yeah, so, That's true. But yeah. I think public schools were pretty similar, yeah. to be honest, out yeah. there. Um yeah, you would like go to the station, it was like nice rice, they had dessert, it yeah. was like an hour or two of lunch. See, the time, too, where, yeah. like, you know, I had, like, maybe, like, a half hour in high school oh, for yeah. lunch and start to, like, between classes. And it's, like, that's not enough time to digest food. And yeah. Just how we think about the value of time and money and totally. what we put it to. Even yeah. here in private schools. Uh, in worked, New York. In New York, yeah. I worked in private school. Lunch was, they had, like, everyone was in lines. You had, like, 10 minutes to, like, get to your table, get your food. Wow. And then yeah. 10 minutes to eat it and then 10 minutes to get back to class. Wow. Because the value is exclusively on in-classroom learning in that yeah. scenario. Yeah. Um, crazy. All right. Any thoughts, Max, before we move on to our first musical break? I think you all hit most of it. I think it was. Uh, it's important to point out, like you were saying, like uh, um, the U.S. is thought of as sort of this land of plenty. And while there is an overabundance of uh, food, it is the way it's distributed, the same thing with wealth, is... Mm-hmm. Um, very unequal. And, you know, for example, I live in a neighborhood that does not have uh, any, you know, well-known supermarket chains Mm -hmm. within a mile radius of me, for example. Mm -hmm. We have the smaller Seatown and Ideal Food, Mm -hmm. um, which do the trick, but don't have the same uh, sort of like options that I think this speaker is... um, trying to suggest are necessary for food equity. Um, And I I loved the idea that uh, was suggested in one article I was reading that um, this plan might birth a, uh, an urban farming Mm -hmm. branch of the government. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It was like commissioner of urban farming or something like that. Yeah. Which is a really good idea. And it's, um, could definitely be an untapped resource. There are a lot of, you know, smaller community gardens out there working to provide, you know, fresh uh, f- fruit and veggies. Um, and if there was someone at a higher scale in the government, of, like watching that, it might be able to expand and really succeed. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And if you look at the history of those gardens in the city, they were started, that movement was started by food insecure communities Mm -hmm. who said we need to be able to feed ourselves with good food, not just what is available right around us. And there were huge initiatives in like the nineties, maybe even the eighties to start 
gardens, community gardens in New York City, and they've become incredibly hip and popular, and right. now everybody's into it. But the the roots are in that uh, movement against food insecurity. So Very it will cool. be interesting to see how how those efforts are wrapped into the government's push. Very cool. Awesome. Like All right. So we're going to move on to our first break. Uh, we'll be back with some national news in a minute. Thanks, guys.
Welcome back. You're listening to Objecting to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm Emily Scott uh, in studio right now with Jamie Lerner. First time joining us for the show. Hey, guys. And Max is here with us on the phone remotely. You there, Max? Yes, I'm here. All right. We're all here. We're back. Um, All right. So we're diving into our national news stories of the day. And Jamie is going to read off the first one. Go ahead, girl. Here we go. Uh, After weeks of protest, Governor Rossello of Puerto Rico finally stepped down on Friday with a controversial successor taking his place. The island has been facing a weak economy, corruption scandals, and a callous response to Hurricane Maria. But the final straw for the governor was the release of private chat messages with 11 other top officials that were profanity-laced, homophobic, and misogynistic messages about fellow politicians, members of the media, celebrities, and others, which um, was in CNN. So uh, much of the protests were led by journalists, feminists, uh, musicians, and queer organizers. Yeah. Um, Wild. Wild. Um, Yeah. Have we seen stuff like this before? Um, Does this sound familiar? (laughs) I don't know. It it sounds a little familiar, but like the idea of it happening in the United States feels like a governor being overthrown for uh, due to unpopularity. Um, I don't know if my historical memory for governmental politics just feels a little short right now, but it feels pretty wild. I don't know. How about you, Matt? Well, something that comes to mind right now is just what's happening in Hong Kong and right. the difference between, I mean, they have very similar political positions as uh, occupied areas you know oh interesting right puerto rico and hong kong are not full states of either china or the u.s Mm. and they are run by uh the difference i guess would be that puerto rico uh democratically elects their governor whereas hong kong uh has a leader that is put into place by the people's Mm -hmm. republic of china government yeah but the similarity is that uh, the governor of Puerto Rico actually isn't the only managing body of the government. The U.S. Congress imposed a fiscal board that actually manages all of Puerto Rico's finances mm-hmm. uh, and overse- uh, oversees it all. And they are uh, appointed by Congress, responsible to Congress of the U.S. Um, and so that, there's where I see a big similarity uh, Hong Kong in Hong Kong, uh, the Chinese government would is not allowing the leader to step down, hmm. despite the massive protests that are currently there are huge riots in the streets or mm-hmm. marches or whatever you want to call them. They're yeah. they're massive, and yeah. uh, the the leader of Hong Kong is unable to even step down because wow. the Chinese government has said you need to sort this out. Wow. Um, whereas Rosselló has been ousted. Um, but again, there's the similarity in that uh, the U.S. the U.S. has not pulled back the fiscal oversight board, mm-hmm. um, which still has much of the power and is part of the whole corruption scandal. Right. So it's really interesting. my worry is that Rosselló is more of a figurehead than anything else. Or he was. Yeah. I mean, that is what's also interesting about this particular scenario was that the last straw wasn't the, you know, Hurricane Maria even or like the economic 
you know, struggles that they've been facing for years, um, largely like, you know, a largely in part due to like the, you know, relationship with the United States and, you know, removing tax breaks and that sort of thing that's happened. Um, but it was really like these texts were the last straw for inciting all these protests, which I find really interesting. It wasn't, um, you know, real concrete issues in the day-to-day lives of these community members of, of the, you know, and people who live on the Island. It was, it was seeing just like the vicious, just like what people say in private when no one's watching, Mm -hmm. what politicians say in private when no one's watching, which got them so angry that they got into the streets. And it's interesting. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. You know, I think in Hong Kong, it's, it's right now what's happening is, is, uh, based on it, it's, it's an inciting moment. I think it was, um, it was something to do with, you know, China trying to place more control over Hong Kong. I'm, I'm blanking on the specifics. Yeah. There was like an, there's an extradition policy right, right. where a Hong Kong citizen was, uh, like committed a crime in China and mm-hmm. then came back to Hong Kong and China was trying to extradite them. Or there was some complicated extradition policy right. that the governor was or the whoever. I don't know what the title of the leader of Hong Kong is, but mm-hmm. they were trying to push it through the governing the legislative body. And people were like, hell no, that's that's crazy. Like right. that is, you know, we already lack a certain sovereignty and that is just eating away at it. Right. Yeah. So that's like that was their inciting incident for the current, you know, and, it, and of course, there's always more stuff happening before historically that lead to these sorts of protests. Um, but what's really interesting, I mean, for me, one of the most really interesting things is that this one's almost just like this bitchy sort of and not not to downplay actually the seriousness of everything that everyone in Puerto Rico has been facing. But it's it's a series of text messages that were meant to be private that got released publicly that got everyone into right. the street. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it says something about like what people are willing to protest for and to fight for. Um, Right. Which is right. This is like feels. Yeah. And I think I mean, because I mean, they're fighting for, you know, better infrastructure post hurricane. They're fighting for all these things. But what they're also fighting for is a recognition of their uh, their, you know, their rights to not be treated, I guess, just or like thought of as, you know, people that are you know just like not be talked to like that right you know what i mean yeah it's a a matter of dignity yeah yeah just basic respect and dignity the fact that the governor and all these politicians thought they could have a whatsapp channel yeah or like something called telegram i think yeah yeah it's like it's also like what year is this like nothing never put anything in writing That you would you wouldn't want someone to see. Ever. Like I just don't want a governor that dumb. I just I literally I don't I don't text Jamie. I don't text her things. I don't want other people to see. Period. Like I'd wait to tell her in person. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's just it's it seems it seems I don't I don't know I don't want to call it I don't know. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting, but it's also everything was stewing, and it's kind of like I guess it's just the the inciting match in yeah. in like a a tinderbox, you know? Well, I would say it, it mirrors like the social landscape of, of Mm -hmm. what's happening in the U S where there are like economic discrepancies Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of things that are, are big issues. And we talk about healthcare, but people aren't like protesting over healthcare. Like people are protesting over me too. People are protesting for gay marriage and black lives matter. And so it's like, I think it comes back to that. Yeah. Um, And that's like the strongest thing. That's really interesting. Yeah. 
Cool. All right. Uh, the next national news story. Uh, Jamie, would you like to read more? Sure. Cool. Um, great. So the state of Arizona has filed a lawsuit directly with the Supreme Court against the Sackler family, which owns Purdue Pharma. While this is a retributive move among many in recent months against a main player in the origination of the opioid crisis, it is unique in its attempt to file directly with the Supreme Court and bypass lower courts. Huh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> First time I saw that. Too. <laughs> it's interesting. It's really interesting. Um, and according to the lawsuit, uh, between 2008 and 2016, Purdue transferred more than $4 billion to the Sacklers, um, which is commonplace and lawful for a company's owners to withdraw profits. Uh, but the suit contends that the transfers were intended to frustrate efforts by victims of the opioid crisis to obtain compensation. Uh, to quote the suit directly, these transfers all took place at times when company officials, including the Sacklers, were keenly aware that Purdue was facing massive financial liabilities and that these transfers could prevent it from satisfying eventual judgments. Like, what the fuck? Um, end quote. And then what the fuck? Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, could they get more villainous? Like, oh, my God. Um, are we surprised that I mean, I you know, they, this is an accusation that they're denying, obviously. Um, but would it surprise us if they were found guilty of behaving this way? I mean, absolutely not. That's, this is part and parcel of being a megalomillionaire, you know, like everybody and their mother who's got millions of dollars (laughs) and a huge company that's continuing to generate massive revenues has been caught up in something like this. Since the Panama Papers came mm-hmm. out, I think this is the kind of expected activity uh, of of uh, massive big business moguls. Right. Not that it's anything to be excused, but it's certainly something we should be more uh, on the lookout for. I mean, they, they can't be the only family that's, or not family, but, you know. Group. They can't be the only company. It's like a cult. <laughs> practicing this kind of various money laundering. Yeah. And I I mean, one thing that I keep going back to is the way that um, there's studies have shown that um, above a certain wealth level, like the way your brain works actually changes, like the way you experience the world and the way you experience. And of course, like I'm just I can't remember specific if you Google it, I'm sure you find (laughs) more information on it. But it it literally it changes the way you, you approach the world, which kind of explains so much about the massive wealth we see in this country and what feels like a lack of empathy and a lack of understanding that it's it's not fair a lot of the time. And like the reason that you're keeping this wealth is often if we look at the Sackler family, it's it's you're hurting a lot of people and um and continuing to do so on purpose to make money. Um, and, you know, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but they their memos were released that showed that um, Purdue Pharma was looking at ways to not only, you know, make money at the start of the opioid cycle, which is distributing pills, but at the end of it in like rehab facilities. Right. Um, which is so bad. It's so bad. It's grotesque. (laughs) Again, (laughs) what is this world? Um, yeah, bad stuff. And then, yeah. Um, and then like on a I mean, this is another note that's interesting about this is that, you know, I I it's been a while since I took a civics class, but the um, I forgot that you could. Uh, so case the Constitution says that um, 
cases in which a state of the union was a party could file directly with the Supreme Court. So it would be a trial right. in the Supreme Court, um, which I had forgotten was something that would happen or could happen. Um, and what's interesting is that uh, apparently previously the Supreme Court ruled that they could treat those cases like they treat every case, which is they could just not hear some of them. Um, but yeah. some of the dissenters, dissenters, including Scalia at the time, said that actually the Constitution says we have to hear every case that wants us to be the original jurisdiction for mm. that case. So Arizona is hoping that they'll actually and maybe they're trying to use the new like right leaning justices to say, like, well, because we're a state and we want this to be the original jurisdiction of the case, you have to hear this case. Right. Um which is interesting. They're good for something after all. I yeah, guess. maybe. I don't know. I. <laughs> it makes me wonder what the other justices decided. Um, you know, what was the um, majority opinion of, of those cases? Because I don't know. I often do not agree <laughs> with Scalia's. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess he. I mean, to be fair, he was just someone who took the Constitution very, very literally and very, con- you know, concretely right. in the time it was written. And he was friends with Ruth. Bader they were friends. I know. Ugh, but whatever. Um <laughs> Yeah. All right. Any last thoughts on that one? The Sackler family. Well, think, oh, yeah. I just, I just think it's, it's insane that this is, uh, that this company has been able to operate so loosely. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm reading that they have thousands of open cases open across the country. Um, nearly four hundred thousand people have died from the opioid mm. overdoses, and they are at, you know, at the heart of the explosion of opioids in our country Mm -hmm. and you know i know it's a growing conversation but the fact that it's been so slow to capture the national uh, capture national attention is shocking yeah yeah Yeah. and the fact there hasn't been you know a a major trial just to piggyback off of that you know that it hasn't gone to the supreme court yet is well i think arizona what because it's all starting in lower courts. So Arizona, that was one thing yeah. Arizona said in its decision to try and go directly to the Supreme Court was that this is going to take years, decades going through lower courts across the country. And if we can just get up to the Supreme Court first and set that precedent, um, we might be able to get help to financial help to the people who need it right now faster. Yeah. Um, faster, not right now. Is there a reason it was Arizona specifically? Um. I'm trying to remember what I was reading. Um, I think Arizona had like a specific uh, economic tie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may even have like some of their some of their company may be based in Arizona, mm-hmm. and they were uh, ex- they were like um, taking money out of Purdue's accounts and putting it into the Sackler family, the various Sackler mm-hmm. family member accounts. And so their argument is that like that's why they can mm-hmm. go directly. Yeah. I mean, rock and roll. <laughs> See what happens. Yeah. So, um, right. so, I mean, in Arizona, it hopes that even if the Supreme Court doesn't rule that they have to hear all cases that states bring directly to them, they'll, they hope that they'll still choose to hear the case regardless. Um, all right. And last national news story of the day. Jamie, take it away. There I go. My favorite. Oh, your favorite. <laughs> My favorite. We were just talking about this. I can't stop talking oh, about okay. it. You guys ready? <laughs> So earlier this week, the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, uh, leaders were questioned in a Senate hearing over its regulation of the infamous Boeing 737 MAX planes. Two crashes within the last 12 months killed a total of 346 people, and an investigative report by the New York Times found that the FAA regulatory process failed to catch the risks of a new software that contributed to the crashes. Um, So... 
basically, according to the New York Times, in 2018, the FAA allowed Boeing to certify 96% of its work. How can we trust a regulatory body that leaves almost all of the certification process up to the business it's supposed to be regulating in the first place? Crazy. That's crazy. I don't. (laughs) I'm just sidebar. I'm always a little bit afraid to fly. And then earlier this year, (laughs) Jamie and I took a fucking plane back from London. Seven thirty seven max. We were on the seven thirty seven max across the Atlantic Ocean. It was a small plane, and I'm always just a little bit afraid to fly. And when I saw how small the plane was, I was like, "This thing should not be over the Atlantic Ocean." But okay, here we go. And I fucking was right. (laughs) She was right. And like, I know it doesn't do anything to soothe my fears. Um, I can't stop reading about this this particular like every article that comes out about the seven thirty seven max. I'm just. It's everything I hate and like, you know, hate to love reading about just with like the the uh, role money played in Boeing's end of it, the the governmental role in allowing a yeah. business to regulate itself. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's not to like go all the way back to the the beginning of the show, but that um, is kind of the same um, mm-hmm. train of thought as like someone who's convicted being able to pay for their own security it's the same thing where it's like if it's cheaper for the company to do it themselves instead of the government paying Mm -hmm. then just have them do it yeah yeah and i mean you know the specifics of the 737 max like articles that have been coming out like i also like i talked like i've talked to a pilot even once about it and he like i told him i was on one of those planes across the atlantic he was like oh no (laughs) like confirmed all my fears yeah um, he was like, that should not be over open water. And I was like, I know. Um, but it's it's crazy. It's upsetting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, this is case in point. Like, this is the type of disaster that might happen. On top of the fact that the FAA was basically the last major na- international holdout to ground the plane. Like, that's what's crazy. Right. That's another what's crazy about it. Is it. Literally, I would say most... Like there might have been one or two countries after, but most countries before, like immediately upon hearing the yeah. news, were like these planes are grounded. And I had a flight going to Europe mm-hmm. I th- in that week of things happening. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it worked out in my favor because I got a better plane ride back for, <laughs> for cheap. The same price. But like, right. it was. I mean, because Europe literally grounded their planes immediately. Because yeah. it's it's why risk it? Like if you don't know what's happening, this is not just one crash. This is two with the same plane in a short period of time, and we don't know why. Um, why risk it? And the fact that the FAA was like, nah, it's fine. Yeah. Is so scary and upsetting. And I remember that time too. And I was like, Jamie, I don't know if you should fly. (laughs) (laughs) And then it worked out in her favor. But yeah, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's that. It's also, I think part of the thing that that came back from it was like pilot training Mm -hmm. um, because both crashes were like, um, yeah, well, was it African or Asian Airlines? One was Lion Air, which is an Asian airline, I believe. And the other yeah. one was Ethiopia. Yeah. Yeah. So, th- yeah. 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 So it came back to like where a couple pilots had maybe noticed something before, but were able to right. override it. So it comes right. down to like the tra- the training as well. Well, the, there's, or, I mean, I don't know. You really but. look into it. So there were apparently certain safety features that were not automatically included were additional add-ons for more money. So airlines trying to save money are not going to do that because I don't know, because they don't think maybe they don't think it's super necessary on top of the fact that it's it, a lot of the um, there. There isn't an automated system for there isn't like a digital system for for this particular 
system for pilots to like, oh, this is happening. I, I can like, you know, search engine what's going on in the manual. No, it's all a, it's a physical manual that literally well, that's great in a plane crash. Well, there's literally I, I can't remember where I read it, but apparently like pilots were literally like scrambling like one was at the wheel and the other one was like flipping through a fucking 300 page manual trying to figure out what was happening while it's Jesus going down. Christ. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> and the more I read about it and like, it's crazy. It's so bad. And on top of the fact that it was, you know, it's this lack of regulatory process. And of course, it's 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 another thing we've been talking about is technology progressing faster than a regulatory body can keep up. Right. Um, Very Black Mirror. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, and it, for those unaware, because I know so much about this. So the new technology had a sensor that if it felt um, the nose was dipping. The, well, it, it was trying to keep up. the plane level. So if it felt it, it was misaligned sometimes or if it felt the nose getting pushed up, it would push it down at an angle that was lo- like that would essentially send it crashing. Um, right. It was it, and it's an automated thing where the pilot like physically would have to override it or something or like it would have to know very specific mechanics. And it, it's crazy. It's so scary. <laughs> and literally nose diving. Yeah. Um, any I, Max, we've been controlling this whole conversation because I can't. I always talk to Jamie about no, this I every other day, but I, you clearly know the most. About <laughs> I can't stop reading articles <laughs> about it. In the world, <laughs> I think that's 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 always my biggest fear. Is like, how the heck does a pilot know what all these buttons do, and what if this thing goes wrong? Right, right. And I mean, then it's they've like got a really intense job. And from what I heard, they were not being told about this the existence of this system because mm-hmm. of exactly what you're saying that not every company was paying for it to be completely like filled out or right. like finished. Well, there was also and Boeing. So- yeah. And, yeah. And I mean, it's another one of things. So Boeing was also racing to get this out in competition with the, um, right. the, uh, the European airline, the Airbus, um, uh, they're, they're competing to get a cheaper, air like flight out there against other companies um essentially and part of that was them saying that this plane would not require new training for pilots Mm. so it was them that was part of it is like convincing that yeah you don't need new training for this or you need minor training or you need like digital training like you know what i mean like you don't need to be you know what i mean um which was wrong um (laughs) fully wrong and then something even where like the simulators weren't accurate enough either according to some pilots um I mean, I think it really does highlight how I don't want to give everyone my own fear of flying. <laughs> yeah. Still flying. You're gonna just Still instill flying. anxiety Whatever. throughout Brooklyn. Whatever. It's, it's what I'm here for. The no, great anxiety bringer. It highlights, the like for me anyway, it highlights this uh, issue of it's all about the money. Like yeah. we need to be able, to, we need to get this plane on the market. And, and it's not just Boeing's economy, you know, it's, they're such a massive company in the U.S., which I think is why the FAA was so mm-hmm. reluctant to ground the planes. They have such a big impact on the U.S. economy because of the size of their company that yeah. grounding the planes right now, they are, you know, as they try to get them back uh, up to regulatory standards, if they can't meet the next deadlines, they'll have to delay work at their mm-hmm. Renton plant. Yeah. Which is like this massive plant in the US that uh that um uh employs ten thousand workers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's this, you know, compli- it's it's all part of this economic right. calculus, I right. feel like, that they're doing right. You know, how much 
does do the lives of the people right. who have died count versus making sure this econo- economy continues to flow in what they see as a seamless way? Mm. Crazy. All right. As much trolley problem. <laughs> God. As much as I want to talk about this for another hour, um, we're running really short on time. I'm going to do a quick little musical break, and then we're going to come in for maybe one more world news story, and then we'll call it a day, guys. All right. Here we go. Folks, one less things to do, not because you gotta. When you run for love, not because you oughta. When you trust your friends with no reason, nada. This joy I've named shall not be tamed. That summer feeling is gonna haunt you the rest of your life. When the cool of the pond makes you drop down on it When the smell of the lawn makes you flop down on it When the teenage car gets the cop down on it That time is here for one more year That summer feeling's gonna haunt you the rest of your life If you've forgotten what I'm naming You're gonna long to reclaim it one day You see that summer feeling's gonna haunt you The rest of your life But if you wait until you're older A sad resentment will smolder one day And then this summer feeling will come haunt you Then that summer feeling will come taunt you That summer feeling will hurt you later in your life I speak of summer feeling When the playground that just was all dirt comes haunting And someone who called you a flirt It's not that these things alone were appealing What I'm now revealing is a certain feeling That summer feeling's gonna haunt you the rest of your life What time? Well, just me When the Oldsmobile has got the top down on it When the cattle moran has got the drop down on it When the flat of the land has got the crop down on it What I now proclaim is sort of hard to name But that summer feeling's gonna haunt you the rest of your life Starts looking good, which you hated And first grade's looking good too Overrated And you boys long for some little Alrighty, we're going to cut that one a little bit short That was That Summer Feeling by Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers And earlier we listened to uh, Sunday Morning by No Doubt 
because it's Sunday morning ish. It was Sunday morning. Um, all right. Yeah. So I, we might only have time. I'm just going to read this out. And then it might be the end. And of then the you show. guys are going to think about it. <laughs> and then everyone's going to. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, so the African Union envoy to Sudan and protest leaders said on Saturday that the pro democracy movement and the governing military council had finalized a power sharing agreement. The agreement is a constitutional declaration outlining the division of responsibilities for a three year transition to elections. Sudan's state run Asuna News, the. Um, Agency reported that the agreement would be signed on Sunday, which is today. (laughs) That might be happening as we speak. Um, The document, which outlines the powers and relationships between the branches of transitional government, comes after weeks of protracted negotiations brokered by the African Union and neighboring Ethiopia. Um, Yeah, so that's it's it's uh, seems like a positive piece of news. Um, There's been a lot of turmoil over there um, recently. And, uh, yeah, something good might happen. I mean, things like this always feel a little bit tentative until Mm -hmm. you actually see them in action. Um, but yeah, any thoughts or should I read, should I just read out the last one about Russia? We'll just call it. It'll just be fascinating to see how they work out a civilian government with the military. Yeah. Yeah. We should move on. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Wait. All right. Uh, I'm wondering, okay. Yeah. Well, like really fast. We have like 30 seconds. Um, people have been detained over an unauthorized protest in Moscow. Uh, Russian police forcibly detained over 800 people attending a protest in Moscow on Saturday after authorities warned the demonstration was illegal. Uh, this comes after a number of opposition candidates were disqualified from standing in local elections. And uh, you know what? I'm actually going to just cut it short because that's all we have time for yeah. today. Um, yeah. Everyone yeah. follow the Russia thing. It's super fascinating. Um Jamie and Max, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, Tune in every Sunday to hear us talk about news. Um, Sometimes we get to world news. We try, but we get caught up. It's a big world. It's a big world out there, and there's so much going on locally and nationally, too. Um, Yeah. Thank you, guys. See you next week. I will say yes. apologies to the next show, but also wanted to give a shout out to the victims uh who died in 